Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Ask most of the people assembled at Davos this week, and most would argue that the 21st century will be, as many have predicted, the Asian century. The rise of China, the strength of many other Asian economies, particularly as the U.S. enters a period of what could well be political and economic chaos, and Europe facing a rising tide of right-wing populism, all point to Asia's promise. But does it? My guest, American Enterprise Institute resident scholar Michael Oslin, a former history professor at Yale, argues not so fast. He argues that China and Asia face a real set of global and internal challenges that might upend the conventional wisdom. Michael Oslin's latest book is The End of the Asian Century, War, Stagnation, and the Risks to the World's Most Dynamic Region. It is my pleasure to welcome Michael Oslin to the program. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Is it still, in your view, kind of conventional wisdom that Asia will continue to rise throughout the 21st century? I think it is. I think it is just beginning to change as people uh, pay a little bit more attention to the problems facing China and as the news about tensions in the South China Sea rise. But overall, I think uh, the the news is still one that uh, people have become accustomed to over the past uh, generation, which is that Asia is going to be the dominant force in the world and, and there is going to be an inevitable shift of power from west to east. Are the issues that Asia is facing today, and I know it's dangerous always to paint with a broad brush, and we'll talk more specifically about specific nations, but when you look at some of the challenges that Asia is facing, are they sui generis to Asia, and to what extent are they impacted by problems and challenges and changes taking place in the U.S. and Europe? Well, it's a good question. I think there's a combination, as always. There's very few things in today's globalized world that aren't impacted by events happening uh, around the world or with trading partners overseas. But I think some of the problems that Asia faces, and maybe the most important ones, are definitely more indigenous in, in their origin. So, for example, if you look at the reason that China is slowing down so dramatically on its uh, its economic side is not only because of aftermath, let's say, of the 2008 financial crisis and a slowdown in, in consumer demand, but it's because of inefficiencies and problems in the Chinese economy that were never fully addressed uh, during its breakneck period of growth. Uh, I think similarly, if you try to understand why are the nations of Asia getting closer and closer to some sort of clash uh, in, let's say, the South China Sea, it's because of the legacies of uh, the post-World War II era, the lack of creating a real community of interests and learning to work together. So I think that there are, um, there are certainly impacts and influences on these issues coming from uh, outside. Uh, from the United States, for example, uh, but at the same time, the real uh, determination of how bad these issues get, I think, come from inside the region. How much of it, particularly with respect to China, is a maturing of the economy? Certainly the breakneck pace of growth that China was experiencing for so long inevitably could not have continued. So how much of it is maturing and how much of it is because of problems inherent in the economy? 
Well, I think certainly there was uh, a maturing effect that everyone discounted because of China's size and because of the fact that it still had so far to go in in many ways. Now, we should have known better, uh, and there certainly were some economists who were pointing towards it. Uh, We should have known better also because of what we witnessed uh, in Japan, which was the same thing, an economy that started at a a fairly low level uh, after the war because of the destruction of the war, very rapidly modernized and then matured uh, in in ways that made the inefficiencies so much more difficult to deal with. And I think the same thing is happening in China. Um, Whether or not you believe in a middle income trap, which is is pretty much what China is in terms of the the per capita incomes in the country, um, the growth was bound to taper off at some point, especially when it was so unevenly distributed that you, you couldn't expect it to continue growing uh, at that rate, if, if so much of the growth was occurring in concentrated areas such as the, uh, the coastal areas. How much of what we're going to see, in your view, in terms of the decisions the leadership of China and other Asian nations make, how many of those decisions are going to be strictly based upon the economic reality of their own country as well as the Asian Pacific region? And how much of it will really be in response to internal political forces that that cause decisions to be made that essentially become distractions to some of those internal political forces? Well, I think one of the reasons you can point to economic problems that plague so much of the region is precisely that these the decisions about how to deal with it were made on political bases as opposed to economic bases. In fact, I have a chapter in the book that's uh, the, the big chapter on economics is called The Failure of Economic Reform, because as you rightly point out, these really are politically driven decisions, and they are being taken in, in the context and an environment in which special interests have a, an incredibly dominant role in, in, in the case of some of these economies where they really are not yet fully developed, so they are, they are operating on uh, almost more pre, 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 pre-traditional or pre-modern ways of uh, of, of uh, organizing economy, organizing labor, organizing investment, and the like. Uh, and in order to uh, maintain group cohesiveness, in order to maintain special interest support, uh, decisions are being made that are not economically optimal. Now, you can point back, I think, to Japan in the 1980s and 1990s doing the very same thing in what we would have considered a much more advanced economy. When you then look at India or you look at Southeast Asia, you can imagine the magnitude of these decisions being taken uh, at at scales which dwarf, you know, Japan, if you're talking about uh, India, of course, uh, but being done in a much less rational way because of the politics. Does that put an added burden on the West to really have a much better, much deeper, much more nuanced understanding of the internal politics of these countries? Well, you'd certainly hope so. Um, you know, it's one reason I wrote the book. Uh, the book is really, uh, it, it's not a prediction. It's not predicting uh, economic collapse or revolution or war, but it is a plea to take uh, China, uh, to take Asia seriously. It's a plea to um, pay attention to Asia before it's too late to really understand what's going on and not impute our own sense of of uh, what is happening in these countries, i.e. that they are all going to sort of modernize in a way that we would find understandable or they will adopt our norms or they will rationalize their economies. Um, you know, this is, this is something where we have had decades 
to look at Japan, to look at China, to look at uh, the Four Tigers, um, to look at India. And in, in some ways, it is disconcerting that we have advanced so little uh, in our, our deeper understanding of the internal dynamics that are both political and social uh, and cultural and economic, and how those ultimately result in an Asia that by any measure has been the most dynamic region on Earth for decades, but which faces enormous problems going forward. Why do you think that is? You say it's disconcerting. Why do you think that it's evolved that way? Well, uh, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, it's a wonderful question that, you know, as a former professor, it, it sort of brings me into the, the, the realm of education. I think there are a lot of reasons. One reason is we focus short-term on business gain. You know, uh, a lot of our attention is driven by where can an investment be made that will yield the highest return. And and we did that with Japan. We, we've done it with the Four Tigers, and we've certainly done it with China. And when one area dries up, we just turn to another one, and we start looking at another region because we, we want to find where that investment comes. So I'd say at least part of it is business. Um, I think part of it is the, the pace of politics in Washington today. It is just simply too hard uh, to pay attention to all the parts of the globe uh, to the extent that they need to be. Um, you know, especially over the past 15 years, Washington has been consumed with terrorism, Afghanistan and Iraq, and uh, concomitantly a, a, a much less uh, percentage of time has been spent on Asia. In fact, I remember a former high-ranking Asia official uh, in the Obama administration telling me that when he went to a meeting at the White House, if he could get 10% of the time uh, focused on Asia at one of the top meetings, he, he felt that was a victory, and, and you're talking about half the world. And the third part, I would say, is is the education part. Um, you know, Asia is probably the most, and I, and I define it, by the way, as going from India up to Japan, so it's what I call the Indo-Pacific. Mm -hmm. It's half the globe. It's more than half the people uh, of the world, more than half of Earth's population live in the Indo-Pacific. It is a dizzying array of political systems and social systems and economic systems and languages, uh, not just the main languages, but thousands of subsidiary languages. So it's very difficult you know, to, to get your head around it all, to learn it. It takes a lifetime, I think, to learn it and to be able to deal with it. And we have uh, very few people, uh, comparatively, who have... Who have done it and really are able to do it. The president, in, at the really sort of the beginning of his second term, President Obama talked about more of a pivot towards Asia. That never really seemed to materialize. Well, I think uh, to give them credit, they, they very much identified Asia as a core concern for the United States. And that was a good thing. I mean, I think, you know, what they did was try to shift attention to Asia first and foremost. And, and I support that and applaud that. Again, it's half the world. 40% of global output, nuclear powers, the world's largest countries, biggest democracies. They were right to say you need to pay attention to this part of the world. There were many things they did that was good. Um, there, there, were, there were lots of different agreements. Uh, many of them, uh, I would say, I don't want to say modest, but they were not, they were not earth-shattering, earth-changing agreements, but they, but they moved little things around, created some new relations, and did things that, that certainly were helpful. But in the, the broad scheme of saying, did we fundamentally transform Asia or Asia policy or change the direction of Asia, i.e. toward you know, China and what China was doing, then I think the answer is at best an incomplete and more realistically, the answer was no. To a large extent, 
a lot of these changes, a lot of these issues and challenges facing Asia today really grow out of demographic changes? You spent a lot of time talking about that. Uh, touch on that. Well, uh, in a chapter I call the Goldilocks Dilemma, Asia faces a problem, all the Asian countries face a problem of having either too few people or too many people. Uh, if you're a country like Japan or most of the advanced uh, developed countries in Asia, you are either facing, uh, you're facing a population decline or you're already actually in a population decline like Japan. Uh, this is, this is unprecedented, uh, but you look at Korea, you look at Taiwan, you look at Hong Kong, all of these nations are uh, at least flatline in their population growth, if not already dropping. And the fact that they're wealthy nations, however, means that they're able to deal with it in a much uh, easier way of, of uh, answering the demands of people for social services and entitlements. China, because of the one China policy, is also about to face a demographic contraction and, in fact, already has a, the, the beginnings of a labor shortage. They've already used up all of the skilled available labor because you've had 40 years of the one-child policy. Now, even though that policy has been uh, been scrapped in the last year, or at least the, the most restrictive interpretations of it were were modified, uh, they, they still will not get more people into the workforce for almost a generation. But China is not a wealthy country yet. It is, it is still relatively poor and developing, and therefore it is going to face a much harder time dealing with the demands of its populace for social services. Then if you look at the other side of the scale, you have countries that just have too many people, uh, countries like India or Indonesia or, or Vietnam. These are very young countries that are continuing to grow, uh, and there the demands are for education, for infrastructure, for jobs, and for opportunity. So whether you have too many people or too few people, the demographic pressures on government is probably the single greatest driving force. It affects economics. It affects domestic politics and political systems, whether you're in democracy or an autocracy, and it even affects international relations between these countries. It also seems that it, it creates a situation that cries out for something that clearly is not happening which is greater interregional cooperation so that you can chase a population around relative to what specific needs might be in a country. I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, a lot of Americans in particular look at Asia and wonder, well, why don't they have a, uh, an EU-type system, an Asian union, you know, maybe not as far as the EU has gone. And I'm, I'm actually in London now, so watching you know, a Britain that's, that is getting ready to leave the European Union. But um, Americans wonder, well, why isn't, there, why isn't there an Asian NATO? Or why isn't there some sort of community amongst these nations uh, that, is, that goes beyond just basically international conferences? And it's a very good question. Uh, part of it, uh, as I referenced earlier, goes back to the, the unresolved questions from uh, World War II. Mm -hmm. It also goes to the fact that today's largest countries in Asia are former imperial and colonial powers inside Asia, so China, India, and Japan, and are so much larger than their, uh, than their neighbors that they are inherently not trusted. Um, there are long-standing cultural issues. These are, these are countries that have overlapping cultural groups and linguistic groups. Um, it's really a dizzying array of, of, of social uh, interaction that goes on across borders in Asia. And yet it has also prevented uh, the type of sort of 
uh, sovereignty-based institutions from developing that we think. And what that means in the bottom line is just that when there's a problem, when there's a crisis, uh, say the Rohingya uh, refugee crisis coming out of Myanmar or uh, South China Sea crisis, there are no collective mechanisms for solving it. Everything has to be done in an ad hoc measure or it has to be done uh, bilaterally. What do you see as the role of the U.S.? So what arguably would you argue should be the role of the U.S. in addressing some of these issues we've been talking about? Well, we are the largest external player in Asia and the most important external player in Asia's destiny. And, and we've been that way for uh, at least since the end of World War II, and, and some might argue even, even before that, uh, uh, even with the other colonial empires. But there's no question that uh, our trade links, our alliances, uh, the, the, the draw of our economy and our society uh, means that when Asians look to uh, the outside world, in, in so many ways they're actually looking to the United States. Uh, and we've benefited from that. We've benefited, benefited from it on the economic side. We've benefited from it on the political side by having partners that we've been able to work with to keep this region stable and because of that stability has been able to grow so phenomenally and, and benefit us in, in many ways, uh, even though there have been some costs, but we've benefited from that. Uh, and so the, the problems uh, and solutions will also involve us. Uh, and the solutions, I think, should come from an America that actually becomes more engaged in Asia and not less engaged. Um, this is where I think the, the potential of the new administration to take us in ways that would reduce our presence or reduce our influence uh, would, would be a negative. Uh, I, I think everyone can agree that you know, rampant free trade imposes uh, costs on American workers, even as it benefits American consumers, and we need to try to balance that. There are many things that we can do uh, that would uh, make trade fairer as well as freer. Uh, we also know that the, the costs of maintaining our alliances are expensive. Uh, no, one, no one pretends otherwise. Uh, but given what we see in the relations between these nations, not having those alliances could be even more costly. And so keeping our presence there, uh, keeping the working relationships that we have, working with like-minded nations who share our values because we believe that, that overall democracies work better together and are more peaceful, these are things that are, are part of the solutions to these problems, including more free trade, uh, that we should be supporting. Uh, I think it would be a mistake to walk back from those, but we do have to think carefully about the costs and benefits associated with, with all of that. And finally, where does Japan fit into all of these issues? Well, Japan, in many ways, is uh, the, the leading example of an Asian country that chose a path of modernization uh, and that took uh, a, a, well, in the 1940s, obviously, took a path that was extraordinarily catastrophically destructive, but has within it seeds of leadership for the region because of both its historical experience and its sort of bridging position between East and West in, in a way that actually still has a lot of resonance. You know, when you talk to Asians, um, everyone is overwhelmed and awed, as we all are, by China's rise up until now, even, even with the problems it has. But very few Asians want to become Chinese. Very few Asians support the Chinese system. 
what they do want to become in many cases is more like the Japanese. They want that standard of living. They want that type of uh, representative government. They want uh, the, the social services and the educational systems and the like. So Japan still, for many of these countries, is a, uh, is a model and is a nation that they want to aspire to. The history questions are difficult. There's no, there's no doubt in that. It is something where uh, it is very, very uh, problematic. The Japanese have not successfully been able to deal with these questions. It hampers them. Uh, their own inward sense at times of what their interests are has also hampered them. But I think under the current Prime Minister Abe, they are getting much better at identifying those interests that are regional, if not global in perspective. They're getting better at acting in ways that are building bonds of trust and that offer an alternative to an Asia that sometimes seems like it is going to be dominated by China. Is there a leadership role for Japan to play? I think there is. I I don't think that it will be one where it it becomes the most dominant nation. I'm not sure that they want that, and I don't think they can do that. But I, I think the same probably is said for China. This is a this is a region that that dwarfs really any country in it. Uh, and I think, though, that Japan, with its connections with the U.S., uh, with the role it has played in providing foreign aid, with uh, even with, with all of its uh, problems at home uh, and its economic stagnation, with the economy that it has developed and the type of civil society that it has developed, really still has a leadership role to play. Um, I'd like to see them do it a little bit more explicitly uh, to, to really play off of those strengths, because I think it is a, it is a welcome counterpart in many cases to China. Uh, but um, they, they will have to grapple with the history question from World War II and really um, accept that, that when you want to be a leader uh, anywhere but in, in, in this region, uh, it, there, are, there are costs. You, you have to bear certain costs in order to do that. You have to provide certain goods. I think they're inching that way, but there's a long way to go. Michael Oslin, his book is The End of the Asian Century, War, Stagnation, and the Risks to the World's Most Dynamic Region. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you very much. Anytime. Thank you.